This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. No, your syndrome of having the second toe longer. It's called, it's called normal. Morton's toe. I didn't know it oh. had a name. Did you? You're making this up. You know what? Okay, you're going to like this. It says people with the longer second toe tend to be more athletic. Me. <laughs> Me again. Intelligence. Compassion, <laughs> coordination. Um, okay, two more things. This is really fascinating. Why don't we do an episode on Morton's I think we are. <laughs> I think we just slipped into it. This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Karen Smith. And I'm Matt Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. Today is our monthly mailbag episode, where we answer questions from listeners about a wide variety of topics. On this episode, we're talking about our favorite wildlife sightings throughout our years in the parks and whether we would recommend a solar charger for backpacking trips. We'll also take you to hiking boot school or hiking boot camp. How clever. (laughs) Whoever wrote this intro was just so clever. She is clever, isn't she? We'll go over all the different kinds of footwear that you can hike in with tips on how to determine the correct size for your foot and how to shop for the right ones for you. So will there be a quiz at the end? Do you want to quiz me? Fire away. I'll see what I can come up with. Okay. All right. All this and more coming up next. All right. We have some great questions on today's episode. Although we always say that, don't we? Do do we ever get questions that suck (laughs) or that we just can't answer? Well, we don't get questions that suck. They are all great questions. We do get questions sometimes that we're not qualified to answer. (laughs) Karen, what questions are we qualified to answer? (laughs) We we can still answer them, can't we? Yes, yes. Otherwise, there would be no mailbag. (laughs) I know. We just... We can't wait for a question about something we're qualified for. <laughs> That's right. We've been waiting a long time, Karen. Fake it till you make it. Isn't that uh, a slogan? Hey, maybe you could do a t-shirt no. out of that. Anyway, people occasionally do write to us and we cannot answer their question. One question we seem to be getting a lot, especially lately, is uh, questions about the Canadian National Parks, specific questions about trails and what to do and things like that. And... Unfortunately, we have just barely scratched the surface when it comes to the Canadian National Parks. We've been up there. We like Canada. I mean, we live close to Canada. We go to Vancouver often, Whistler, uh, Victoria. 
We've been up to Lake Louise. So it's not that we don't like Canada. It's it's just that there are so many destinations in the U.S. that we wanted to get to. And then COVID hit and it was just closed. Yeah, we actually were planning to go um, the summer of 2020. We were going to drive up and go to Banff and Jasper and Yoho. And then, of course, COVID hit, the border closed. And then when they finally reopened the border, the um, COVID testing requirements were so strict that we just thought, you know, there's no way. I mean, you had to test before you cross the border. You had to test after you cross the border. And But we will get to the Canadian parks now. It's on the, it's on the list, hopefully, for next summer. Uh, but we will see. And then maybe we can answer that question on a future mailbag. All yeah. right. So another question that we get a lot, people have been emailing us wanting to know about the pizza places that we go to in and around the parks, because we're always talking about, you know, we did a hike and then we went and got pizza. So people send in mailbag questions about, could you share your list of favorite pizza places? We do talk about pizza a lot, don't we? Yes. Yes. Now, we have never done a mailbag episode about that, because for one thing, The answer would be too long for mailbag, and I think it would be too short for a regular episode. And the real clincher is I couldn't think of a way to work History Channel into We're not doing the history of pizza. (laughs) I'm drawing the line, and all the listeners will thank me. (laughs) We're not doing How did pizza come about? No, but we did do an, an episode about pizza, all of our favorite pizza places. We put it on our Patreon account. We did. We just put it on the other day. So for all of you who would like to know about these pizza places, of which there are quite a few, I think the episode ended up being like 25 minutes, um, please head over to our Patreon account and join the party. Oh, yeah. There's a party going on over there. There's a pizza party. Yes, there is. There's a happy hour party. There's lots of parties going Mm -hmm. on. So. That's right. For only $5 a month, you can support our podcast to have our undying gratitude and get access to some ongoing fun bonus content. And if you become a patron and later you decide you want to leave the party, you can just unsubscribe. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not a forever thing. Uh, Unless you want it to be a forever thing, (laughs) we would be fine with that. We would take forever. (laughs) Now, we have a link to our Patreon account on our website at www.thedearbobandsuepodcast.com. Okay, I think it is time for us to start this episode, this mailbag episode, Karen. So where are we at? Okay. Do we have a question? We do. Our first question comes from Kaylin, and he wrote... I don't know if I'm old enough to have a question on your podcast yet since I'm only 13, but I figured it would be cool to have someone my age write you a question. We think that's cool too, don't we? That's right. We do have an age limit, but we'll make an exception for Kayla. Now, anyone... Anyone can ask us a question. Yes, and we do think it's cool to get questions uh, from, from people who are under the age of 18. So continuing... Kaylin wrote, this summer, my dad dragged me and my two siblings on a cross-country trip starting from Virginia to Arizona and Utah, and we saw lots of wildlife. So I want to know, what are some of your favorites? Wildlife. Now, mm-hmm. this, this we had this discussion before we recorded this episode. Wildlife is not just mammals. <laughs> You kept saying <laughs> we're going to talk about our favorite mammals. But mammals. This is, you know, Kaylin said wildlife, which would include any. I prefer mammals. Oh, I know you do. But, you know, you could, if you have a favorite reptile, we could talk about that. This is this is a broad category. I'm not really into the reptiles. 
<laughs> yes, we found that out on last week's Everglades episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have nothing against reptiles, but I, I prefer mammals. Yes. Yeah. So what's your favorite, Matt? If you had this list of wildlife and you said, like, which one of these, if you saw it in a national park, you'd get the most excited... You know, grizzly bears, they're pretty exciting to see. Now, you, you want to see them at a distance. <laughs> yes, preferably. <laughs> and so that's kind of the problem, right, is you see them from 500 yards away, and it's cool to see them. You don't want to be 10 feet away from one. Uh, so it's all—it's always great to see grizzlies. Yes, I always have equal parts anticipation and fear. I want to see one, and I don't want to see one. Um, like you said, from further away is a lot better. But not just grizzlies. Like black bears, we've seen some big black bears in the wilderness, too, that are spectacular with their cubs. And, and again, you want to be at a distance. Right. So some of the places we have seen grizzlies are, of course, Alaska is prime grizzly viewing. We saw them at Katmai, and we've talked about that experience. And that was one of the coolest national park experiences out of all of them. And we were close. We were really close to the brown bears yes. in Katmai. I'm just surprised that they let people get that close. And, and they don't let you get that close. You're not supposed to approach them. And if they approach you, you're supposed to back off. But there are times when we were walking through the trees and, I mean, there was one right there, 30 feet away. I know. It was such a unique experience. And, you know, at first we were terrified to be that close. But as the rangers explained to us... During the time we were there, which was early July, and the salmon runs are, are coming through the river there, the brown bears are fat and happy, and they're getting all the food they could want. So they're not looking at humans as a food source. They're not. However, I was just reading an article that said in 2018, two young bears pawed people at Brooks Camp. It's the first physical contact with humans in over 20 years. Now, the NPS called it a minor incident and no one was hurt, but you still have to be careful and, and have a healthy dose of respect or you'll get pawed. Is that a warning for people going to get well, I, I think you gotta be you gotta be careful uh, whenever you're around bears, right? Yeah, for sure. Now, two other places, um, Kaylin, if you're interested in 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 hoping to see a grizzly, of course, Montana has a lot of grizzlies, Glacier National Park, and in Wyoming, you've got Yellowstone and you've got Grand Teton National Park. Lots of grizzlies there too. Now. We always, you know, we always have our bear spray on hikes in these parks and we're always ready. We have never seen a grizzly in those parks except from our car from far away. Right. And matter of fact, the only time we've ever pulled out the bear spray and actually thought we might need to use it was on a bighorn sheep right. who was coming at us uh, on, on a trail in Glacier National Park. But still, it's good to have it. Yes, Absolutely. One of my favorite wildlife sightings, uh, something we always look forward to, are bison. And, you know, we did a uh, great American bison road trip to hit a lot of the parks where you could see bison. And that was still one of the best road trips we have ever done. Right. We might have to do a version of that again. Love to see the bison. And you have to be careful with them also. Absolutely. Uh, I, I know there's there's times when... If you're lucky enough, you're in the park, and if you're in your car, they'll walk right past your car. But gosh, I mean, you, you got to keep your distance. And in fact, one ranger told us the story where a visitor in Teddy Roosevelt National Park, uh, the bison were passing his car, and he reached out to pet one, and the bison got up on the car and smashed the car, almost injured the 
person. I mean, they had to rescue the person out of the car because it literally smashed him into his car. So they, they can be aggressive. Well, sure. And now we have seen on social media a ton of videos coming from Yellowstone where people are walking right up to the bison like like it's a cow or something. They literally walk up to their face and take photos. And some of those videos, the bison is then charging the person and throwing them. So it's horrifying to watch, to, to see these people get so close to, to bison. Yeah, you gotta you gotta keep your distance. Uh, they look very docile, but they can turn on you quickly. They do not want to be messed with. So we mentioned the bison in Yellowstone. That's a great place to see them. Now, as people who have been to Yellowstone know, it's also extremely crowded. And Lamar Valley, where where there's a lot of great bison sightings, there are also traffic jams. So I think you know two other great places to get up close and personal from the road. Custer State Park and Teddy Roosevelt National Park. Yeah, and we did that several times when we visited Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, the South Unit is where we spend kind of most of our time, and we saw a lot of bison there. We've been to the North Unit. We've never seen bison up there, but they also have a herd, mm-hmm. so uh, you can see them there too. Right, and these are places where if you're lucky and you're going along the park road, they will be next to the road. They'll be next to your car. You can see them up close with some level of safety, and you don't have the traffic jams like you do in Yellowstone. So those are some great spots. There are actually a lot of um, state parks and other places that have bison too. Okay, are we ready to move on to our next mammal? Yeah, yes. What, what would you What would you choose? It's always cool to see a moose. Mm-hmm. And they're they're harder to find. They're usually solitary, although we've seen several times a mama with their baby. You got to be super careful around them cuz the mother will be very protective. Uh, we saw Moose in Glacier Bay National Park. Matter of fact, we were riding our bikes into town from the lodge. And on our way back, we as we're coming back on this gravel road, nobody else around. This moose steps out of the forest right in the middle of the road and just looked at us and wouldn't move. And we didn't know how we were going to get back. No, because they had told us earlier in the day when we rented bikes that so this area, the stretch of road is called Moose Flats, where the moose hang out. And they said that moose have been known to chase people on their bikes. And so I was terrified because I'm not a very strong bike rider. And I don't know how fast moose can run, but I'm pretty sure they can run faster than I can pedal. And I can pedal faster than you. So I, I, was, <laughs> I wasn't all that concerned. You weren't worried at all. <laughs> no, but he, he was looking at us for a long time. And then a, by coincidence, a ranger came by in her car and she sat with us for a while and then he moseyed on off into the trees. So we, we were able to get back. But yeah, it's fun to see moose sightings. It is. And we saw one really close up last summer when we were in Glacier National Park. We had done a hike to Cracker Lake. And as we were coming back, we were on the trail. There was a lot of vegetation just to the left of us and uh, the hillside kind of sloped up. And all sudden there was a movement and I looked to the left and there is this giant moose literally right there with this you know he has this huge rack I actually tripped and fell down you just fell down you (laughs) fell down I was looking at the ground just you know where my next foot would go uh on the trail and I saw you fall and I looked up and I saw Bowinkle and he's like 
six feet. From oh my us. god! I mean, r- right there. And uh, yeah, we we were fortunate that he was acclimated to hikers because yes. it, it did not mm-hmm. bother him, and we just kept going. Uh, but we were dangerously close to that moose. Oh my gosh! Until we saw him, and then we we kept going on the trail, and then we turned around when we felt we were a safe distance, and we watched him for a while. So that was really cool to see. Yeah, you know, another place that we've seen moose a lot is in Grand Teton National Park. And we hike around Jenny Lake and on that backside, the west side of Jenny Lake, we usually take the Cascade Canyon uh, Trail up to uh, Inspiration Point and then sometimes further. That's one of our favorite hikes, especially in fall when the leaves are changing. Anyway, our friends Craig and I were going there just last week and they asked us for a hiking recommendation. And I said, do the Cascade Canyon Trail and you'll see a moose. And they texted us a few days later and said that, sure enough, they saw a moose. I don't know. Maybe it's the same moose. I don't know. Who maybe it there? is. We always see a moose. And one time it was bonus because we saw a moose with her baby. So those are those are some of our favorite mammals, grizzlies, bison, moose. Yeah. I would also add um, it was a thrill to see a wolf in Yellowstone. We were doing a snowmobile tour in the winter. At one point, our guide who was leading pulled us all over to the side of the, the road, the closed road that we were snowmobiling on, because he could see a wolf coming towards us. So we all pulled over to the side, stopped. Of course, we got out our camera and this wolf ran right, like within a few feet of us. Oh, yeah, he just ran right past us. Yeah, that was one of the coolest things I've ever seen, especially because it was this magic magical place in the winter. There was snow. It was beautiful. And it was kind of like a dream to see this wolf coming right past us. So that was really incredible. Now, moving down the food chain, I always like to see a good prairie dog town <laughs> if we're going to go down in size yes. of, with, with the mammals. Um, <laughs> the prairie dogs are fun. And there are some parks with prairie dog towns and, and hiking trails that go right through the prairie dog town. I'm thinking of one of my favorites was that trail we did in Teddy Roosevelt. And the, the cute little prairie dogs are literally popping up out of their holes everywhere. And right. they're looking at you and they're making these squeaky noises and it is pretty cute and they are sounding the alarm as if they've never seen a human ever before (laughs) and and you know that that there's humans going past there every 15 minutes every day of the year so those are some of our favorites, Kaylin. But I think anytime you see a creature in the wild, whether it's, you know, even like a mountain goat or a bighorn sheep, I think it's thrilling. I think yeah. it's it's just it's a it's an amazing thing to see. So there you go, Kaylin. Those are our choices for favorite wildlife. Yes, and I just want to add that I think you're really lucky that your dad is dragging you and your siblings to to these parks. Um, Matt and I have talked in the past about we wish that when we were kids, our parents had taken us to the national parks. Or dragged and, us. Or dragged us, either one. <laughs> um, so I, I'm guessing in 20 or 30 years, you're going to look back on these experiences and be extremely grateful. Not that you're not grateful now. I'm sure you're having a great time with your dad, but it becomes even more special the older you get. That's right. All right. Are we ready to move on to our next question? Yes. The next question comes from Mark in Michigan, and he wrote, I'm going to be spending several days hiking the Appalachian Trail this fall, and I need to buy a solar charger for my electronic stuff. Do you have a recommendation for backpacking? Hmm. Kind of yes, kind of no. We have uh, struggled with this also ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, We've tried several solar chargers. 
I don't know that we have a recommendation, but we can tell you what our experience has been. Right. One situation we were in where we really needed or wanted one was when we did the dory trips through the Grand Canyon because we were on the river one one time, six days, the other time, 16 days, uh, and wanted to keep our, particularly our phones charged because that's where we take all, all of our uh, photos. And we had the solar chargers with fold-out panels. So you fold them out and then you connect a cord to it. And usually you connect that to a battery and then that you use that battery later to charge anything that, that you have. I don't know that those are super reliable. We really struggled using those. Um, and it wasn't just Matt. So Matt had one, I had one, and the other 14 people on the trip who were our friends, they all brought them too. And every single person struggled to get a charge on those solar chargers. So think about how the day is going to unfold. Let's say you're on the Appalachian Trail and you know, you're know you hiking most of the day. I think the idea is you open it up and you strap it on the back of your pack and so you're hiking all day, it's getting sun, it's charging either a battery or a device. But you know, you're in the trees a lot. Uh, the thing is hanging usually vertically, so it's not getting usually direct sunlight. And sometimes you're half the time, on average, you're going to be hiking into the sun rather than away from the sun. So you don't get really good exposure. The only way in the Grand Canyon on our 16-day trip that we could get them to work was... When we would stop for lunch, and we'd usually have an hour break, we would open them up and put them on a big rock so that the solar charger is facing up. And now at this point in the Grand Canyon, the sun is directly overhead, so it had full sun. We could get a charge at that point, although it was a very slow going charge. The rest of the time, it was so frustrating because we would get to camp at around three or four with still plenty of daylight left, and, and we had assumed we could charge our phones. I would hang mine up on our clothesline with all of the panels facing, you know, kind of the setting sun, nothing. There was no charge whatsoever. So if you are relying on just a solar charger on your backpacking trip, you could really be in trouble, especially if you have cloudy days, if you have rainy days. I think these solar chargers are great to top off your power bank battery, but I would never recommend that anybody go go on a backpacking trip with just a solar charger. Yeah, I, I think that the only time they really work well is if you have a full day of full sun and you can just let it sit there and you know have 12 hours of sunlight, you probably can charge a full battery, but most people don't have that. And there are devices where the panels are fixed. They're fixed onto a battery. So there isn't mm -hmm. this issue of the panels flopping around. And so those connections are more secure. But again, that thing has to sit in the sun. It, it's just a slow go. Right, very slow go. And when you read the reviews of any solar charger, because I did look up, you know, when we did the Grand Canyon and we, when we struggled, this was in 2019, so it's been three years. So I looked up to see if there was some kind of new technology out now. And boy, when you read the reviews of solar chargers, there are a lot of negative reviews. But let's talk about what we do use on our backpacking trips. Yeah, what do we use? <laughs> Well, I want to explain, we each take our own portable battery pack. It's also called a power bank. Now, I know some people who are listening might not know what this is. So let's briefly explain what that is. 
Uh, it's it's nothing more complicated than a big battery that's designed with uh, uh, you know a USB outlet, so you can charge devices when you don't have an electrical outlet to plug them into. They come in all sorts of sizes. You have to look at the amperage. Generally, the heavy the heavier they are, the more charge that they can hold. Mm-hmm. And so I'm always you know trying to juggle: Do I want to carry the heavy battery with us on a backpacking trip and get more charge or do I want the lighter one? Cause you know, there's, there's ones that are a little bit bigger than a lipstick container. Right. But you know, don't, don't be fooled and think that's carrying as much charge as the bigger, heavier one. Then the smaller ones are just going to have smaller charge. Right. The one I take backpacking is about the same size as my cell phone, just to give you an idea. And I can get two full charges out of that battery. So what I usually do to conserve my battery on my phone is during the day while we're hiking, I put it on airplane mode because a lot of these places, there is no cell service or internet and your your phone is constantly searching for a signal and it wears down the battery really quickly. So during the day, I put it on airplane mode. Then when we get to camp, I charge it with my battery. I can get a full charge. And then at night, I make sure and turn my phone off again so battery isn't being wasted while I sleep. Yeah, so if you do all of that, and you have a battery with you that gives your phone two full charges. I mean, you can go a long time. You, Absolutely. You, you could go a week, I think. Uh, I always take one that basically gives me about one full extra charge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't do what you do as far as making sure it's always on airplane mode because I know that if, if I run out, you can, I can just use, <laughs> use your phone. <laughs> When you ask me to use my battery, I'm very possessive of that because I don't want my phone to run out of a charge while we're in the middle of the wilderness. I know. We measure the percentage of your battery, that how much percentage charge it has both before and after I use it. And so I get what you'll say. Okay, you can use 10% of my battery. <laughs> that's right. And uh, Yeah, that's very generous of you. So Mark, you might know all about batteries. But for those of you who don't, when you're shopping for them, you know, Amazon has a lot. Anchor is a, is a very popular brand. That's A-N-K-E-R. And the models run from anywhere from $20 to $60. And like you said, Matt, that depends on how big they are and how much charge they can hold. Right, you can get a $10 battery at uh, Target or Walmart or wherever, but you have to look at the amperage. And if you look at the fine print, it'll, it'll tell you how much storage it'll have. And you just compare that to the other ones. And there's no secret to it. Essentially, the bigger the battery, the more charge it holds. That's right. Now, one thing, make sure you read the details because when I ordered mine and I've had it now for a couple of years, I love it. It came with a cord to fully charge it at home, right? It did not come with a USB cord to to then charge my phone in the wilderness. So I had to bring my own cord, my own charging cord. And again, if you're going on a backpacking trip, make sure and test this out before. Make sure you charge the battery fully at home and then make sure you've got the correct cord to take with you into the wilderness. One other question we get, which... um Like I understand, but just to make perfectly clear for people, on the solar panels, you can connect those solar panels directly to a device, like a phone. Sure. Right. You could charge your phone directly from the solar panel. I don't do that. I typically just, I charge the battery and then I use the battery later to charge the phone because I might want to use my phone 
while the, the solar panels are sitting out. Right. right. Or I might want to charge my phone in the middle of the night. I use my battery to charge my phone. I use it to charge our SteriPen, which is um, electronic, right? Mm-hmm. So it needs a charge. Every now and then there's some other device that I might have. Sure, like Apple Watch. Right. Also, when you are shopping for a portable battery, just note some have a spot for one USB cord, some have two or three. So if you do have multiple devices and you want to charge them all all at the same time, you want to shop for a power bank that has multiple ports for a USB cord. Right. And now within the last few years, they've changed the shape of the USB port. So there's you know the old USB and the new USB. So again, You just want to get all your cords figured out at home Mm -hmm. so that when you get out on the trail, you know you have the right ones. Absolutely. So, Mark, I guess our advice from our experience would be if you are only going to be on the Appalachian Trail for a couple days, we would just recommend taking a regular power bank, a battery pack, and skipping the solar charger because that would just be one more thing to carry. And as we said, in our experience, it's somewhat unreliable. But you could get easily a few days worth of charging with just a simple battery pack. Right. So hope you have a wonderful time on the Appalachian Trail. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. All right, Karen, what is our next question? Okay, this question comes from a lot of people. We've gotten this question a lot over the last year or two, and it's about what hiking boots do we wear and recommend? We could talk about this topic, honestly, for four hours. We're not going to. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot to say, uh, so we'll try to you know, go over the highlights. But yeah, we get, we get this question often. We stopped recommending our specific boots to people because obviously everyone's feet are different. Uh, people have you know, wide feet or narrow feet, flat feet or high arches. And some people have the feet, <laughs> feet where you know, the second toe is longer than the first toe. Most people do. Wait. Most people do. Is your second toe longer than yes. your first? Yes. So, so <laughs> I, like, okay, you could fact check this later, but the majority of people have a longer second toe, Karen. I no ha- hate way. To tell you. Yeah, fact check it. You're wrong. I'm going to fact check that right now. Hold okay. on. There you go. All right. What do I type in? How, long second toe. <laughs> how many people have a longer second what percentage? toe? What 100%. percentage? 100%. Okay. Except for you. Okay. Hold on. Here it is. Oh, wow. Did you know it has a name? Did you know it the has a name? The second toe has a name? No. <laughs> <laughs> this little, yeah, it's the little pig that stayed home. No. <laughs> it didn't get to go to the market. No. <laughs> <laughs> No, your syndrome of having the second toe longer. It's called it's called normal Morton's toe. I didn't know it oh. had a name. Did you? No, you're making this up. No, I'm not. Okay, let me read what it says here. Hold on. Okay, it says it's very common. Okay, yeah, you're right about that. that. But it says a study of American college students found that 42 percent had longer second toes. It's so it's pretty common. You you okay. thought I was unusual that I had a longer second toe. And now it turns out that 78% of people have a longer second toe. Yeah, I guess it's hereditary. I didn't know that either. 
Okay, you know what? Okay, you're going to like this. It says people with a longer second toe tend to be more athletic. Me. (laughs) Me again. Intelligence, compassion, (laughs) coordination. Um. (laughs) Okay, two more things. This is really fascinating. Why don't we do an episode on Morton's toe? I think we are. I think we just slipped into it. In Greek sculpture and art, the idealized foot showed a Morton's toe. Yeah, me again. It was the standard of beauty. And get this, this would have been a good pop quiz, but I know we have to keep going. The Statue of Liberty has Morton's toe. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Wait. So don't you feel foolish (laughs) that you're making fun of me all these years? I feel left out and I feel unattractive now. You'll always be my money beat. <laughs> but I, I don't have the longest second well, time. You have to wear socks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Enough of Morton Stowe. Thank you. I do think that would present some challenges in finding the right boot, though, if your second toe is longer than the first. But maybe not. Maybe no, you just go with the. No, because normal people are. <laughs> <laughs> and the shoe manufacturers know this. <laughs> so a few years ago, when we were young and naive, I had posted on our Instagram stories a swipe up link to some hiking boots that I wear all the time that I love that were on sale at REI. So I, you know, I said something like, hey, my favorite boots are on sale. And I did the swipe up. And about a month later, we got a DM from a woman who uh, said that she bought the hiking boots based on my recommendation. And she hated them. And they're the worst boots she's ever had. And it's your fault. (laughs) It was my fault. So that's why we stopped recommending because It's just like any article of clothing. It's never going to fit anyone the same way it fits us. Right. I had the same situation. I wear, and this is not a recommendation, I wear a Solo Boots, A-S-O-L-O. They're Italian made. They're fantastic, incredible quality, but they fit my feet well. I don't know if they're going to fit your feet well. Matter of fact, I have a really close friend who bought them because of that, and they hurt his feet so bad. He had to take them back. Yeah. So that's just because our feet are different shapes. Right. And shopping for hiking boots for the right pair for your feet is one of the most important things you can ever do if you plan to hike. Because, boy, if you get an ill-fitting pair of boots, you are going to be miserable from the first dozen steps or so. I mean, this is key. And we think that this is someplace where you need to spend your money on a good pair of hiking boots. Oh, yeah. You don't want to go cheap here. And, And I'll just continue with the example of mine. They're expensive boots. Mm-hmm. Like the inexpensive model is like right now, it's like $275. The more expensive model is like 350 You might think, well, that's a lot. But I, I know for a fact that these boots are lasting me two to three times longer than less expensive boots. So by the hiking mile, these expensive boots are probably the cheapest per mile. Because they're high quality and they, you know, just the comfort factor alone, right? So it's it's like anything. You get what you pay for. Mm-hmm. If you're going to hike a lot, you should figure out what the right boots are for you and, and don't spare the cost. Exactly. My Asola boots, I've had them resold. Mm-hmm. And I can have them resold because they're such high quality that when the soles wear out, the, there's enough integrity of the, the boot that they can put a new sole on. So that right there saves me two thirds the cost of a new pair. And so when you factor some of those things in, an expensive piece of equipment actually might be 
the most cost-effective way to go. Now, one thing you can do, and I've done this before, is you can shop the sales, right? And a lot of times these boot manufacturers, when it gets to the end of a season and they're, you know, they're starting to sell their new boots, they will put the last season boots on sale. So I have bought a lot of my various hiking boots on sale. Now let's talk about the different kinds of hiking boots and shoes and sandals that are out there. Yeah. I mean, you can go all the way from, you know, Low top sandals to high top, uh, you know, heavy duty, uh, strong ankle support. So where do you want to start? Well, choosing the right type of boot or shoe depends on where you'll be hiking. So if you live somewhere where maybe the trails, you know, you're not climbing mountains, you're going on some flatter trails and the trails don't have roots and rocks, you could go with with a lighter shoe that's flexible. That's going to be different than if you're hiking up mountains and scrambling on rocks, which is going to be different than if you're hiking in Utah on the slick rocks. So we'll talk about some of these different uh, different boots that are good for different places. Right. I have sensitive feet and I don't like feeling every pebble yes. on my foot. Mm-hmm. And so my boots are, are pretty thick soled and I wear the kind of heavy duty boots almost everywhere. But you're carrying the weight of that boot every single step. So if you knock six, eight ounces off per per shoe, that can be a meaningful difference over, you know, a 10 mile hike, right? Yes. I also had the Asolo boots back when we started visiting the national parks. I agree. They're fantastic. They were too heavy for my feet. My feet were tired after every hike. So I gave those up and I, I found some lighter boots. So Again, it depends on are you backpacking, how fa- how long of a trail. But let's start with, let's talk about those high-top boots, the big, heavy, high-top hiking boots. What I like about those is being high-top, gravel doesn't get in them as much. And so I like it higher top. I also always wear long pants. And so when the, the, the pants go over the high-tops, no gravel, no rocks, nothing is getting in there. Right. So that's one of the reasons I... I wear the high tops. Yes, and there are some different styles of high tops, right? There's there's a boot that comes just over the ankle there, and there are some that come a little higher. So that's just a personal choice. But I think the pros of these high top boots are longevity, like you said, your solos last for years, ankle protection, and support for carrying a heavy backpack. If you're going out for days and you are carrying a lot of weight on your back, those high top boots are better for um, for heavy loads. Right. I agree with all of that. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's move on to shoes. And these would be trail runners. Now, I love to wear these because they're lighter and they're comfortable. Um Trail runners are different from regular running shoes because they have a much thicker sole, which, you know, you're going to want when you're hiking on roots and rocks and things like that you need, or even slick rock that's slippery. You want want that traction. You want that tread on the bottom. Um, So yeah, they're technically running shoes that have been beefed up with more support and more traction. Yeah, and I have no, and I have nothing, <laughs> nothing to, to, add, to say to that add to because, that because never... <laughs> I, I don't I don't run. Yeah, and I don't have trail runners. Right now, this is um, this is also a less expensive option. I think the ones I have bought have averaged around a hundred dollars, maybe a hundred and fifty dollars. So if this is something that works for you, this is less less expensive than the big leather full on hiking boots. 
Yeah, and and we see people all the time, and you know it depends on your your level of fitness. Sure. I mean, we see people who trail run all the time, and they're they're just flying up yeah. these trails, even though they're rocky and stuff. And then and they have the trail runners on, and they work great for them. <laughs> yes, let me clarify. I am not running on the trail in my trail runners. <laughs> I am just hiking. But yes, people do run, obviously, in the trail runners, not me. Okay, so moving on to the hiking shoes, which are the low top boots. And I have a pair of those as well. And you, you yeah, do, you actually, do too. actually, I do too. And I, mm-hmm. I, I don't use them very often. But uh, the low tops that I have have a nice, heavy sole to them. Matter yes. of fact, the, the sole is as thick as my high top hiking boots so i don't feel any of those pebbles and rocks uh when we're hiking and you know it gives you it gives you more flexibility around the ankle Mm -hmm. uh they're lighter so i mentioned before about how i like to wear high tops to keep out the rocks and pebbles with low tops you can buy small gaiters that fit over your boot and they attach to your ankle and with a little pull string and it, it makes a seal so that no dirt gets in there. And I, they weigh nothing. So you could keep them in your pack sure. all the time. It also works really well for sand if you're hiking oh, yeah. on sand dunes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you absolutely have to have some kind of gaiter or long pants over the top of your shoes when you hike in the sand. We have made this mistake. The sand will get in your boots and fill up. And you're literally having to stop every 100 yards to dump out your boots. Uh, yeah, so so they're great. It's at that point, it's a personal preference. Right. Now, hiking shoes are going to be tougher than the trail runners, right? They offer more protection from any obstacles. And they have what's really important is a toe cap that can save you from stubbing your toes or from anything that might drop on your toes. Yeah. And this toe cap, this is an important detail. I learned the hard way. It's, I think it's important on whether they're low top or high top. I got a really nice pair of hiking boots and the model had the leather all the way covering the toe up to the sole. The problem with those are when you're hiking pretty much anywhere, you're going to bounce your toe cap on rocks and roots and things and they will get scuffed right away. And it made me so mad. The first hike I went on, my expensive all leather boots, got the toes were all scuffed up. They're not made for that. And so there are models that have the rubber cap. Mm -hmm. And so I switched to that and I bang that rubber cap or I don't know if it's rubber, it's rubber, plastic, whatever kind of synthetic it is. I've banged those against the sharpest rocks for hundreds of miles and it's perfectly fine. Yes. So that is something to consider. Definitely. So these low top hiking boots or shoes, it's the middle ground between a trail runner and the high top boots. There's going to be more support and longer lasting soles, but they're not quite as heavy as the high top hiking boots. That's right. Middle ground. Now, one more shoe that we should talk about. When we went on the Grand Canyon trip, the folks at Oars, our guide company, suggested that we buy water sandals. Water sandals where the toe is covered and with a good tread, uh, because that way we can sit in the boat during the, our sections on the river and you get wet, so your feet are you know getting wet. But then when they pull off, we're ready for a hike and they're comfortable enough to hike in. So I bought Keens. Was your brand Keens too? No, mine was, um, was it Chaco, I think? Okay. Yeah. 
and, um, and I've I've got a couple of pairs of those, and I, and I love them. Yes, uh, we actually hiked really well in them, and we thought they were great, especially if you are hiking any place that has a water crossing or slot canyons that might have standing water, anything like that. You can just trek right on through the water in your water sandals. Although I will say, and maybe I'm just more particular about this than most people, because they're open. The webbing has, I mean, holes for the for water to get out if if you're in water. Dirt and sand get in those too. And, yes. And mm-hmm. so what I did on the Grand Canyon trip is I had water socks. So I had the neoprene water socks on. They're thick and they're comfortable. So I wear the water socks. And then when we hiked, when dirt and rocks got in there, I didn't really feel them because that neoprene was just cushion enough. Uh, that I was still comfortable. Yeah. I like to wear my Keen water shoes hiking in the Southwest when it's hot. And we're basically the trails are on slick rock because those trails, there aren't pebbles and things to get into my shoes, right? It's just, and the thing is when it's really hot outside, I like not having thick socks. I like having my feet uh, being able to breathe. Yeah. My feet don't breathe. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm fine with You're fine with that. I'm fine with socks on. <laughs> One more note. Uh, we also have seen people hiking barefoot. Uh, we would not recommend that because it seems to me like there are a lot of uh, objects that you could step on and really uh, cut your feet up. But, you know, it yeah. works for some people. Yeah, and so, yeah, some people are barefoot everywhere so that they, they know what they're doing. Um, we also see quite a few people hiking in flip-flops. I mean, we've we've been... Five miles from a trailhead on a strenuous hike and see people in flip-flops. So whatever works for you. Right. I do think that as we get older (laughs) and our feet get older and our joints get older and, you know, we've been hiking for thousands of miles, it does become more important to have a good structured pair of boots, right? Um, I think when you're younger, sure, go off in a pair of flip-flops. But as we as we get older, I think, you know, it's important to take note of some of these things. Now, talking about, you mentioned, Matt, your feet don't breathe. Let's talk about whether to buy waterproof boots or not, because a lot of boots are um, Gore-Tex boots. They're more expensive, but is it worth it? Yeah, so a couple of points on this. First of all, the boots I have are Gore-Tex, and what this means is there's a waterproof, not water-resistant, but a waterproof layer between uh, the inside and the outside of the boot. The tongue on the boot is actually connected to the sides, so really about three to four inches up the boot, it's completely waterproof. So if you step in water, and it doesn't go up over the tongue or up over the ankle. Uh, you're you're waterproof. Uh, however, once water gets in, it's the opposite, right? <laughs> it, it, the water's not going anywhere uh, because now it's waterproof and, and it's keeping it in. I think one of the downsides of Gore-Tex footwear is that it's less breathable than the non-waterproof option. So it can lead to hot feet. And that's never good. I do have a pair of waterproof high top hiking boots that I use to snowshoe in the winter. And I love them at that point because yes, they keep my feet dry. Yes, they're warmer for my feet. And also I do like the stability when I'm on snow and ice. I like having that ankle support on my snowshoes. I think it works great. So what I'm getting at 
I think if you are hiking in different climates on different terrains, it's good to have several pairs of several different pairs of boots slash shoes. Yeah, I think. Oh wait, wait, wait! What's that? Oh my gosh! Look, there's there's an animal, some kind of wild animal in our front yard. It's huge. It's. What is that? Is that a bobcat? Oh, it is. Yeah. Oh my gosh! What is that? I think it is like a bobcat. It's huge. That's not a regular cat. That's like a. It's like a bobcat, or a small mountain lion. I don't know what that is. <laughs> we just had a. An animal walk across our front yard. Sorry for the interruption. I think it, I think it was, was a bobcat. Yeah, it's, we, we have a lot of wildlife out here. <laughs> Kaylin, come to our house for some wildlife sightings. The bobcat needs to pick off a mole or two while he's here. Yeah. All right, so but, and, we, we should continue with... Yeah, so just one more note on the several different pairs. So for instance, I have the Gore-Tex high top boots for snowshoeing in the winter. I have trail runners that I like to wear in the summer on day high. I have some heavier low top hiking boots that I take on backpacking trips. And as I mentioned in Utah, or Arizona, if it's hot, I'll wear my keen sandals. So if your budget allows, and you are traveling to a lot of different places and climates, it would be good to sort of diversify your, um, your hiking shoes a little bit. So that explains why on every road trip, you bring a dozen pair of shoes. Is that <laughs> throw them in the back of the truck. Well, it explains part of it. But you know, just think about it. I also have to bring shoes for all the non-hiking activities. And that's... I know. You bring. You always bring a pair of cowboy boots. You're not a cowboy. <laughs> <laughs> but there ma- might be a cowboy activity that we go to, like a rodeo. You got to be prepared. I keep it a little bit more simple. I have the uh, solos mm-hmm. and I wear them kind of everywhere. I think we're g- going to have to have a Smith rule. Two pairs of shoes. That's it. No, the Smith rule is you pack it, you carry it. And yeah, I'm gonna I... put a divider down the middle of the truck and <laughs> your stuff has to stay on that on your side. Great. Great. Why don't you go do that right <laughs> now? I'll finish up here. Well, okay. Thank you, folks. <laughs> Hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. I have no idea what she's gonna say. Well, okay then, let's go shopping. We're going to talk about some shoe shopping tips to help you find the right boots. But I just want to say, too, if you have certain issues, like let's say you have flat feet, you can Google best hiking boots for flat feet, and you can find a lot of suggestions online from both boot manufacturers and outdoor retailers. That's right. Okay. So shopping tips, Matt. Yeah. So first of all, we suggest you try them on in person. I know it's super convenient to order online, and and you can do that, but you're going to end up, I, I guarantee you ordering a lot of boots and sending a lot of them back. And that's going to take a long time to get the ones you want. I personally prefer to shop online as much as possible, but this is one of those things where you want to go somewhere. And we've always had luck with REI. seems like um, the folks that work in the shoe department uh, are very knowledgeable. Although I got to say any outdoor store that has a, a lot of business, their shoes are a big deal for outdoor stores. And so they get a lot of lot of questions and you get knowledgeable pretty quick yes uh if you're in the shoe department you know ask them their opinion try on boots and make sure you're trying them on with socks that are similar to the ones you're going to use we love darn tough socks i think it's the only sock we've worn for the last several years you might want to just take a pair with you i know they always have (laughs) used basket full of socks (laughs) um i have nothing good to say about that but uh yeah make sure you have the hiking socks with you 
Right. And as far as fit goes, first of all, if you can, you want to be trying these boots on at the end of the day because feet do swell during the day. So your feet are going to be just a little bit bigger at the end of the day. And as far as fit goes, you know, the fit should be snug around the sides and around the heel, but it's really important you want a half an inch of space at the top where your toes are. Um, now, one good way to check this, because unless you have x-ray vision, it's hard to tell when your foot is in the boot how much space you have at the top. So an easy way to do it is pull out the insole from the boot, put it on the floor and step on it, put your put your foot on it. And there should be a half an inch of the insole sticking up above your toes. And that's how you know that you have enough room for all the downhill hiking you're going to do where your foot is going to be slammed into the top of the boot. Yeah, the boot fit and how your foot feels is very different on uphills versus downhills. And yeah, you are you are taking a lot of the weight of your stride on your toes when you're going downhill. Right. And sometimes we'll hike, you know, it's it's a 10-mile round trip hike and have, five miles of it's downhill. And that that starts to hurt pretty quick if there's not enough room there. Right. Even after all these years of hiking, what happens with me is I end up at the end of the summer and I lose the toenails on my big toes because <laughs> my big toes are freakishly long. Yeah. And <laughs> Like yeah. too much? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. What should, we should put a, a warning on this episode. Do not do not listen to while you're eating. <laughs> yeah, so one quick tip also when you're putting on your hiking boots to go for a hike, don't stand flat footed when you put your boots on and tie them. You want to um, sit down, have your heel on the floor and the rest of your boot raised so that your heel settles into the back of the boot and then lace them up tightly so your foot isn't slipping back and forth. That will help also. Yeah, so this all might sound like common sense, but again, when you're out hiking, your your contact with the rest of the world is those hiking boots, right? And, right. and so uh, right. it does does become pretty important that they, they fit right and they do what, what you need them to do. Yes. If you are hiking with a new pair of boots, and this is maybe a new brand for you, make sure to break them in before you go on a long hike. Wear them around the house. Wear them maybe out to the store and break them in so you don't get blisters the first time you're on a hike. Yeah, because I don't want to get out on a 10-mile hike and get two miles in and have a bunch of blisters. Now, what, what I also do, uh, and I recommend this regardless of your level of, of experience, um, is I keep band-aids in my pack with me, especially for the heels. I'm prone to, to heal uh, blisters. So, you know, if if you are getting some hot spots, get on them right away. Mm-hmm. Stop on the trail. Put the band-aids on. And that has saved me so many times just be able to slap those on. And then, you know, you're not getting this terrible blister that, that you're feeling for the next eight miles. Right. That's huge to, to get on that as soon as possible. Otherwise, it's completely miserable. Okay. How long will your hiking boots last? And more importantly, how do you know when it's time to get a new pair? Yeah, that's a tough question to answer given that, uh, you know, I think they're going to wear down faster depending on the kind of terrain. I learned one time that my boots were past their prime because we were on a very steep trail and I started slipping mm-hmm. and it was on the edge of a cliff. And all of a sudden I lost total confidence in my boots. And for a few minutes there, I thought, I'm not going to be able to 
get off this spot. So you don't want it to go too long. Exactly. Just a few tips we'll mention. So as you covered, Matt, when the tread on the bottom is worn down, that's number one. Uh, then when the cushion in the shoes has compacted and your feet are sore after hikes and when they're not normally sore, uh, that would be another clue. And then when, of course, your boot has holes in it that will impact the stability and support. So those are all kind of warning signs. It's time for a new pair of boots. Yeah, now we we hike a lot, and and a lot of people who listen might only hike two or three times a year. So you got to adjust all of this advice to your situation. But one thing that I do, I then keep my old boots, and I wear them around the yard and you know in the garage in the workshop as my work boots. Sure. And and then they last, guys. They last a couple years because I don't need, I don't need that traction, right? I don't might not need the waterproofing just to mow the yard or, or do stuff, uh, you know, maintenance on the house. Uh, and then they're, they're nice and broken in, they're mm-hmm. comfortable. And so, yeah, uh, that I think that's a good use for them then later. Absolutely. It extends the life and the money that you paid for it. Matt, if you're not wearing flip-flops, you are almost always in your hiking boots. Right. If, I, if it, I'm outside the house, I don't yeah. wear them inside the house, right, because right. they're all dusty and dirty. But if I'm outside the house, I, I have hiking boots on. <laughs> right. Yeah. At a brewery or... <laughs> but I've also found a brand that just fits my feet really well. You might look at them and say, why are you wearing those big clunky boots? It, it's like I don't even feel that they're on. So if you have something like that, that it's that comfortable, then yeah, you can wear them everywhere. Sure. Absolutely. And and the thing is, too, once you have found your brand that fits your foot, you are set because when you need new boots, you know the brand to go to or if you need a different style. So I, for instance, like La Sportiva. Well, they have the high top hiking boots. They have low top uh, trail runners. So I tend to gravitate towards those. I also like the brand Vasque, V-A-S-Q-U-E. I guess we weren't going to mention any particular brands. Yeah, but, but I mean, those are just, those are fantastic brands. Yes. But but you have to try them out for yourself if you're listening. Right. Because again, for you, they might not fit the same way. Right. And if you are someone who doesn't live anywhere near an outfitter and you are shopping online, the reviews that people have left are hugely helpful because they will tell you, you know, for instance, someone might say, oh, I have flat feet and I love these boots or I have high arches. And so it's really important to read the reviews and you'll kind of get a sense of also, should you size up a half a size? Um, You'll learn a lot and it will be helpful in your online ordering. So there's a half an hour of rambling about hiking boots. (laughs) (laughs) Hope we answered your question. Okay, so signing off on this one, the takeaway from this is take good care of your feet and invest in good shoes and boots because how many thousands of miles will you walk in them? Yeah, with the right pair, hopefully many, many more. All right. Thank you all for tuning in today for Hiking Boot School. Yeah, if you weren't confused before this episode (laughs) about how to choose a pair of hiking boots, you should be now. That's right. Now, if you have a mailbag question for us, uh, one that doesn't involve uh, pizza places or Canadian national parks, you can send it via email to us at mattandkarensmith at gmail.com. 
Next week, we'll have an exciting new episode in store for you, which will air while we're hiking up the south rim of the Grand Canyon. We're doing the rim to rim next week. Yes, and rim to rim will be a good test of our footwear. What will you be wearing, Matt? Wait, wait, let me guess. Your high top of solo boots. Right, one of my two <laughs> pairs of shoes that I get to take on the trip. 